0: Uh, If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, we've got a, well, we've got a fun message for uh, this morning for us all. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to take on the first 16 verses here. Uh, There is a common and long-standing expression that we've probably all heard, uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, and it, of course, means don't go too far in your corrective actions. By all means, make the corrections necessary. Uh, but don't throw out good things along with the bad. Uh, and this morning, our text is really a classic case of this proverbial uh, principle. Now, we're going to have to spend a little bit of time doing some technical uh, some technical stuff this morning uh, in verse 1. Because uh, in verse 1... There's a lot of confusing different ways that different translations handle it. And it really is a watershed verse for the rest of the passage. So we're going to take a little bit of time to make sure that we understand this verse right. Otherwise, we'll get the rest of the passage uh, wrong. So in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says this. And I'm reading from the 2011 version of the NIV. It says, Now for the matters you wrote about... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, I wanted to stop right there, because we've already got a lot to deal with. Uh, Virtually all modern translations put the second half of this verse in quotation marks uh, to show that this was a statement that was being brought to the Apostle Paul to evaluate and address. Uh, And I think that that editorial help, the quotation marks, are really quite helpful to the reader. Otherwise, we might mistakenly think that the second half of this verse is actually Paul's counsel, and it is not. So, I want to show that to you. Here's some different translations. Uh, in the NIV, uh, just as I've, I've read it to you here again, this is the 2011 version. You can see where it's well now. They're all, uh, you can see where it's all put in quotations in the second part of the verse. And then also the ESV does this as well. It puts it in quotations. The NET Bible does this. The NRSV does this as well. There are a couple of notable exceptions, though. Uh, For those of you who have a New American Standard, can I see some hands? If you have a New American Standard, this will help me. Okay, so several of you have this. Um, The New American Standard does not use quotations to aid the reader. Um, But they don't do this really anywhere. (coughs) In fact, if you look back to chapter 6, verse 12, where we know that Paul is using a quotation or a slogan from Corinth, uh, they don't put quotations there either. So it's just not something that they use as an editorial tool. Uh, Also, the King James uh, does something different here as well. Uh, And it's a little hard to see in that second text. But the King James on the words, it is, they put that in italics to sort of underscore it. And what they're trying to do there is they're trying to deal with sort of the awkward construction of the verse uh, by highlighting the first part against the second part in contrast. But I think it actually misleads the reader and confuses the point of the passage and even muddles the passage a little bit. Uh, The third thing you may be looking at this morning, if you have... An NIV, but it's the 1984 version of the NIV. Did you even know there was a new one? 2011 to 84, you're finding this. And in fact, if you're using a Bible from uh, underneath the chairs this morning, that is a 1984 version of the NIV, most likely. Now, it, t- it takes the passage even differently, doesn't it? It says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. And then there's a footnote uh, at the bottom, which shows an alternate translation. But it says it's good for a man not to marry. So it's even more confusing there. Um, and I, and I got to say, the 1984 version, this was my favorite version of the NIV. I did all of my memorization in this particular version, and I loved it. But I got to be honest about it. It is somewhat notorious for making interpretive decisions for the reader. And many of those are unwarranted. And I think it's actually been improved upon in most cases in the 2011 version of the NIV. But a literal rendering of the Greek word here, which is haptomahi, says that it is good for a man not to touch a woman or cling to her or fasten to her. Those are all possible renderings of that particular phrase. And those are common euphemistic phrases for sexual intercourse used throughout the scriptures. And so I think as we have it in the, the 2011 NIV, I think we have it better. Now, I'm throwing a lot at you here. I'm going to bring this to a nice, tidy uh, uh, point here in just a moment. But I think we learned two important things right at the beginning, I hope, which is this, that Paul, what Paul has been asked about, the issue that Paul has been asked to address is not marriage, but rather the question of sexual intimacy, even intimacy within marriage, All intimacy. Uh, and that's the presenting question that Paul essentially cuts and pastes. He cuts it from the Corinthians' letter to him and pastes it in his own reply, thus the quotations. Uh, we understand this to be a Corinthian slogan that some in the church were bringing to Paul uh, to in order to get his opinion on this, and in the same way that we saw it back in chapter 6 and verse 12. This slogan, however, comes not from really the immoral crowd around Corinth, But it comes from an ultra-conservative crowd within the church. Uh, In other words, so if you've been lost, here's the point to re-engage right here. It seems that in this instance, there's an ultra-conservative group within the church that is reacting to all of the immorality around the city and within the church. Uh, And instead of merely correcting bad behavior, this group is essentially suggesting abstinence For everyone, that's the title that I have for you. Even for married couples. And Paul is being asked to speak to that. And so Paul is going to deal with this question. And as he does so, he's going to deal with intimacy within marriage. Uh, He's going to address singleness and purity. uh, And he's going to address how Christians are to live with unbelieving spouses. If that's the situation they find themselves in. In other words, we find a really inclusive uh, address to the issue here. And so really, the subtitle of this passage should be this, and I put it in your notes for you. How Christians handle intimacy in a world of immorality. And that's what Paul is really getting at here. So with all of that, look at verse 7-1 with me. We'll take, uh, we'll take the first uh, seven verses. Now for matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Well, we've got an easy text ahead of us, don't we? (laughs) Anybody want to trade places with me this morning? (laughs) I had a funny conversation with um, Pastor Josh over email this week because, you know, we talk each Sunday about the passage that we have in front of us and sermonically maybe where I'm headed so that we can prepare music that, you know, prepares us to hear the word and respond to it. So you can imagine our discussion of what songs we ought to sing this week, you know. How do you prepare worship music for a sermon about sex? (laughs) Uh, So I told him, you know, well, maybe we should do some Barry White. (laughs) Or some Marvin Gaye and clothes with a little Neil Diamond. I had a picture of Josh over here at the piano, you know, with the smoking jacket on and the lights down low. And then right after the service, both he and I could update our resumes, right? (laughs) yours is a little fresher than mine, I think. But the point of the passage here is really clear in these first seven verses that husbands and wives are encouraged to enjoy an intimate marriage. And I was also thinking about delivering this sermon, I thought, you know, we may set the record for the number of amens in a single service uh, with this passage here. We might even get the uh, rare hallelujah at some point here. Um, But Paul affirms that husbands and wives are to enjoy an intimate marriage, especially in a world of immorality. Now, I know this is an awkward topic uh, in a public arena, with mixed genders, with different ages in here this morning. Uh, But I believe that the church historically has been too quiet about sex. And you know what? The Bible is not. It's not. And we need to talk about it precisely because the Bible does. And in addition to that, the whole world is talking about sex. And if the church will not, then the only message that our children are ever going to hear is what the world is saying. And I, quite frankly, would like the church to be educating our kids on this topic rather than the world. Can I get an amen to that? All right. There's the hallelujah. (laughs) I want to know who's keeping track. Let the tally start now. (laughs) Friends, we have a better message. We have a better message. Human sexuality is a gift. It is not a curse. And the church needs to start treating it as such. And so Paul speaks positively about the intimacy between a husband and a wife, and his instruction, I think, underscores its importance in a world of rampant immorality. Uh, and this isn't a new teaching. This is the teaching that we find from the beginning of the scriptures, isn't it? In Genesis 2:18, it says, It's not good for a man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Incidentally, that word suitable means one who corresponds to him. It means anatomically one who corresponds to him. Men and women were made for each other. And this is what Genesis teaches right from the beginning. It goes on in verse 24, same chapter. A man will leave his family and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is about intimacy. And in Genesis two twenty-five, the very next verse, it says, and Adam and his wife were both naked And they felt no shame. That's just the first two chapters of the scripture. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. God made a good gift and he has given it uh, to us. And so the gift of marital intimacy with this gift, God has given to husbands and wives a wonderful way of expressing love, of vulnerability, and care for one another. And when intimacy is honored and practiced as God has made it, it is wonderful. In fact, it is a purposeful thing. It is a means by which we regularly affirm covenant to one another. Understand, marital intimacy is not just about feeling good. It is about regularly affirming our covenant one to another. And so in chapter 7 here, Paul thankfully dismisses the idea of abstinence for all, even married couples, or in this case, that's what we're thankful about. And he kind of wags his finger so as to say, don't let the immorality around you ruin this good thing that God has given to you. Neither should you be ashamed of intimacy nor jettison it from your relationship or from your life. It should be the regular, uninterrupted practice of husbands and wives. And this is what Paul is getting at here. In fact, you might even say, because the immorality is so rampant that Paul underscores its importance uh, of intimacy between a husband and a wife as a protective measure for one another against temptation. But Paul will not have us simply be sensual beings, you know, chasing eroticism wherever we find it. The intimacy that God has designed for husbands and wives is to be practiced in the confines of marriage. Paul commands fidelity. Human sexuality, the expression of it, is limited to the covenant of marriage. And we're told explicitly here each man with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Uh, Now, there's something, or two things, that are really countercultural in this teaching here to Corinth. Uh, First of all, we've already talked an awful lot in this series about really the rampant immorality in Corinth, right? Uh, you should know this well by now. Corinth, one, one commentator said this, Corinth was a place that people came to spend money on a holiday from morality. Remember that? This was the sin city of its day. Uh, we learned that even the phrase to Corinthianize uh, became synonymous with to practice immorality in the culture. The teaching of the sophists, we addressed this last week. They really taught about the separation of the body and the soul in order to to justify people's immorality. In other words, if your body and your soul are not integrated things, then do whatever you want in your body because the soul uh, is the Lord's and the body is yours to do with what you will. And that was sort of one of the prevalent teachings among the city. And that was being used to justify immorality. Immorality was so pervasive that even temple prostitution was practiced at the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. It was a part of their worship services, if you could call it that. But Paul doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Instead of deleting intimacy, instead of being ashamed of it, Paul would affirm its inherent goodness when it is practiced according to God's design, which is faithfulness within marriage. Another countercultural aspect of what Paul is teaching here. Uh, that I think is worth noting, is that he addresses both men and women. Do you see this? That may not stand out to our eyes so much, but in the culture, I think it would have been quite a radical thing. In the ancient world, which was really tilted towards men, Paul dignifies women as equal partners in marriage, and he defends their equal rights with regard to intimacy. Each person was to thoughtfully look to the needs of their spouse. And so instead of being... Prudish, Paul encourages spouses to be generous to one another. And then thirdly here we see that instead of being selfish, Paul encourages spouses to be sensitive. Now look at verse 4. Talk about another radical teaching here. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way the husband does not have authority Over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. Talk about a radical teaching in any culture, maybe even more so our culture. Uh, Can you imagine if you taught this publicly, in some kind of public debate, if you if you laid this out there, um, your public life would be over. (laughs) Uh, The world would rail against this. Uh, But what Paul shows us here is really, I think, the new math of marriage which is that one plus one equals one. That husbands and wives are not self-serving when it comes to intimacy, but they're sensitive to one another, and they are each one equally committed to the needs of the other one, to the oneness of the couple, and that's their commitment. Now, I think it's critical to understand something here about this, and I hope you'll listen carefully. Um, Neither the husband nor the wife is to assert bodily authority over the other person. It is in this passage it is the subject who acts upon themselves to yield themselves to the other one. This passage has been unfortunately used historically to justify abuse within a marriage, and understand here that there is no one overpowering anyone else in this particular construct here, nor demanding from the other, but each one willfully acts upon themselves to be gracious to their spouse. It is a picture of mutual submission within marriage. And it seems to me that because of rampant immorality, whether in the Corinthian culture or especially in our culture today, that the intimacy between a husband and a wife is not less important, but maybe more so. And so we get really the straightforward command, do not deprive each other. Verse 5, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now here's the big question here. What is this concession that Paul is talking about? Uh, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this particular topic here, and I think unfortunately over the years there's been a lot of misleading uh, teachings on this or misunderstanding uh, Paul's concession here in verse 6, I think, has wrongly been attributed to a couple of things. And I'll show you the ones that I think are wrong first and then get to the right one. Some would say that they think Paul is teaching that marriage is the concession against singleness, which is preferable. That's one uh, error. Another error, I think, is that some would say that intimacy is the concession where celibacy was thought to be superior. And I think that's also wrong. But in fact, I think the concession that Paul allows for here is this period of abstinence. That's the concession. A period of abstinence for prayer where a couple would devote themselves to prayer. Uh, In other words, if I could say it this way, prayer cannot be used by one spouse uh, to sort of call a time out and say, Oh, sorry, uh, it's time of prayer. You know, this isn't the new headache clause. Okay, sorry. Time of prayer for me. Uh, it is to be mutually decided upon, and even this time of abstinence, where a couple would agree to do such a thing for a time of prayer, is a concession against the normal and regular pattern, which Paul uh, says is in fact better. Uh, intimacy should be regular and uninterrupted. So let me let me give you a summary of this whole thing here. Men and women, we live in a world of rampant immorality. We're not to throw away the baby with the bathwater. God has given us a good gift of intimacy within marriage. It is a means to protect one another from temptation, and it is a way to rehearse our covenant one to another. We need to cultivate healthy intimacy in our marriage, and that's the command of Scripture. And a period of abstinence for prayer is Paul's concession. All right, now we're going to move on to singles here. So if you're sitting here and you're single, either as a widow or someone who has never been married, you're probably sitting here making your Christmas shopping list by now. And, uh, but wonderfully, Paul doesn't leave you out of the discussion. So look at verse 8 with me. And now to the unmarried and the widows. So whether singles, you know, whether you've never been married or whether you have been married and are not now. I say it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, for the sake of time here, uh, I'm not going to address uh, divorce this morning. Uh, I think Paul's pretty clear about it here. I'm just going to say a couple of quick statements. Divorce is never God's desire. It's never God's desire. God does make a concession for it in the case of sexual immorality, but it is not a must, and it's never God's preference. Okay, that's about as tidy as I can cut that. But what we find here is this, that remaining single can also honor the Lord. Whether one chooses to never marry or whether one has lost a spouse and chooses not to remarry. In either case, remaining single can also honor the Lord. Now you need to understand too, this was really countercultural uh, at this particular time and in this age around Corinth here. Uh, there was great pressure for one to marry, particularly because by being married and having children, that really was largely sort of the welfare uh, you know, set up of the day. This is how we cared for ourselves, that our children, you know, I, Amy and I joke about this from time to time. We sometimes kind of think, we maybe we should have had more children, you know, just to increase the odds that one of our kids will do well in life and take care of us in our old age, right? <laughs> have you ever thought about this? This was the thinking of the ancient world here. Um, and so choosing to remain single was really a radical kind of Well, it was a radical kind of thing. In fact, if you think that you were or are pressured today, for those of you who are single, you think you're pressured today by family. Maybe your mom is, come on, let's get married. Let's have some grandbabies, you know. You feel like you're getting that kind of pressure. Imagine this. Uh, In the first century, in the Roman world, Augustus had widows fined if they did not remarry after two years. Can you imagine that? The state bringing pressure to bear on you? Imagine You know, a couple weeks after the funeral and you get a letter from the state effectively saying, you're down to 750 days before the fine will be imposed. But that's in fact the culture that uh, that they experienced here. But conversely, in the church, widows were actually mildly encouraged not to remarry. In fact, the church even arranged itself around the care of those widows that exercised that option. And so what we find here is that to both those who had never married and to widows who maybe chose not to remarry, their singleness is viewed by Paul as a gift and as an honorable choice, freeing them for greater devotion to the Lord. And in Paul's culture, honoring or advising one to remain single was radical. And in doing so, a person conveyed something to the observing world. Remaining single was a way that one might even show that ultimately their trust was in the Lord and not in anything else. Tim Keller has said it this way. Single adult Christians were bearing witness that God and not family was their hope. That's his commentary on this passage. And so Paul not only dignified this choice, but even the church kind of arranged itself to care for widows who would make that choice so that they would be able to increase their devotion to the lord and For those who did that, the church supported them and, and helped to make that happen. This is a very, I think a very relevant topic for our culture the the topic of singleness within the church uh, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but statistically, for the first time in the history of our nation, there are more singles in our culture than marrieds. Did you know that? In 2014, the pendulum shifted. Uh, and surveys showed that for the first time, greater than 50% of the nation was single. Uh, in contrast, to 1976, when they began tracking this statistic, the percentage at that time was 37%. That's how far the pendulum has shifted in our culture. That's a radical change in a short time. Uh, And so this is an issue for the culture and for our our church today. Uh, And Paul here affirms the benefits of remaining single. And some of these we'll continue to see throughout the chapter, and I'm not going to address all of them this morning, but Paul radically affirms singleness, at least a certain kind of singleness. And that's the question I want to put in front of you this morning. Now, some of you are choosing to remain single Uh, but for different reasons. And I want to be sympathetic here. Some of you are single and it's not your choice. It's not what you want and it's not what you desire. And so I'm, I'm not going to speak so much to that this morning. I'm sorry. I can't hit every topic here, but I'm, I want to uh, speak to those specifically who are choosing it. And maybe not even just in this church, but in our culture at large. And I want you to consider the question, why are you choosing it? Why are you choosing it? Um, I know that many of you find yourself single. That's contrary to your wishes. But it seems to me that today, there are a lot of people that are opting for singleness, but not to increase their devotion to the Lord. They're opting for singleness, I think, to increase their devotion to themselves. I don't mean to say that about everybody, you understand? But I think culturally, that's the trend that's at work. I think many are choosing to be single but also claiming the prerogatives of being married. Remaining single and pursuing intimacy with those who are not their spouses. Um, This is the kind of singleness that is being confronted here, that is being challenged here. Um, There are benefits to remaining single. There is freedom. There is simplicity to be devoted to the Lord. But if one is choosing singleness, understand this, you're also choosing sexual purity before the Lord. If you're choosing singleness, you're choosing celibacy. And so one must also maintain their purity. God has given some the gift of celibacy. It's often been called the gift that nobody wants. Just kind of a funny phrase. Uh, But Paul said actually that it was desirable and that it was in fact beneficial to him in his ministry. And we'll talk more about that in in some upcoming weeks. But overall, singleness for the widow or for the unmarried is dignified here. And that really was a radical, radical kind of teaching. Uh, And again, it's not this this singleness that allows one to be self-centered and hedonistic, but singleness that was honored was that which increased one's devotion to the Lord and availability to the Lord. Let's look at verse 12. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Boy, tons of questions here, and I've got to deal with this quick, so i probably leave you with more questions than answers, but... Effectively, what we're told here is that Christians who find themselves married to an unbeliever, whatever the circumstance, however that occurred, should stay with their unbelieving spouses. Uh, Paul is really inclusive in this, isn't he? I mean, he doesn't just deal with one simple set. He deals with the whole range of marital situations here. So, for those of you who find yourself in a marriage to an unbeliever for whatever reason, I want to say this. I think you are in the most difficult of all of the situations presented here. And I say that with compassion and sympathy. Marriage itself is hard. Uh, talk to any married person, it's hard. And I love what Tim Keller says about it in his book Marriage is glorious, but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears. Humbling defeats and exhausting victories. Is that not accurate or what? There it is. There's an amen. Here we go. Marriage is hard. But maintaining purity as a single in an immoral world, I think is probably even more difficult, especially with a culture that is as immoral as our own or as, as was Corinth here. Uh, but to those of you who are living with unbelieving spouses, I think you have the hardest calling of all. Uh, You are called to be missionaries in your own home, to your own spouse, to your own kids. And I think that's the right way to see yourself and not an easy task. Uh, Effectively, Paul is saying here that by staying married, you may have a redemptive influence on your spouse. You have a redemptive influence on your spouse. Uh, To those of you who find yourselves in this situation, you have some really difficult decisions to make, difficult questions to ask yourself, such as, how can I be devoted to the Lord without being offensive to my spouse? How many church activities can I go to before it creates tension within within my marriage? How could I give to the ministry financially if my spouse is not in support? How do I support my spouse when their values are contrary to godly values? Um, These are tough choices, tough decisions. And I wish I had a a lot more encouragement to give to you. Uh, But my advice from Paul to you is to see yourself as a missionary. To prayerfully and carefully measure your testimony, the testimony of your life, and the testimony of the gospel. And recognize that you are having a redemptive influence. You are having it. By staying married, you're a missionary in your own home. And secondly, by staying married, you have a redemptive influence on your children. Um, Now, I know that statements matter, or at least I hope they matter to you. But I also know that stories sometimes matter more or hit home uh, a little more. And so I want to close this morning with a bit of a story. Uh, this is my grandmother. This is Laura Johns. Uh, she's 84 years old. And uh, this is taken uh, two summers ago. She was in our kitchen. She would come out to visit. might be her last visit uh, to Fairbanks. It's getting harder for her to travel. She had a rough year. She ended up having a stroke. And she dislocated her kneecap. And then she fell and broke her collarbone. And uh, it's been difficult. Her eyesight is failing now. Um, and her chief complaint about her eyesight is that it, it makes it difficult for her to read her Bible. <laughs> and so here is my grandmother reading her Bible with uh, an LED flashlight that was given to her by the family as a gift so she could keep, keep reading even though things are um, dimming for her. Uh, she's been a deaconess in her church for over 20 years. Uh, she taught children's Sunday school for over 30 uh, She had a hard upbringing. Uh, That's an understatement. She was orphaned as a young girl, uh, raised largely by her sisters. She married at an early age, uh, 16 years old, uh, largely to escape the abuse of a family member. Uh, My grandfather, the man that she married, uh, was in the Navy, and he was a rough man, and that's an understatement. He was an alcoholic, uh, which is a bit of a plague on our family. And to say that the early days of their marriage was not good is, again, an understatement. But she, as a believer at an early age, made a decision to maintain her faith and devotion to the Lord. And it was not easy. She went to church alone for their whole married life. Uh, She took her kids, uh, my dad, Sammy Johns, (laughs) to church with her regularly. And Sammy became a Christian at an early age, and I say praise God for that. Um, both my dad and my grandmother struggled in this divided home, and a contentious home, for 18 years. And then one day, my grandfather, largely because of my grandmother's devotion, gave his life to Christ. He hugged my dad for the first time when my dad was 18 and told him that he loved him. And my dad can't remember hearing it ever before that from him. And as I sit back today and reflect on, by God's grace, where I get to stand today, here, to teach to you the word of God, I recognize that I am standing on the faithful missionary effort of my grandmother, who was devoted to the Lord through really hard seasons and introduced my, my dad to Christ. And so today there are three generations of believers in our family who owe their gratitude to this faithful woman. She's not perfect. Uh, and she's going to listen to this message too. She makes me send her all of my messages. So shout out to Grammy. Um... <laughs> But friends, we live in an immoral world, do we not? How do we respond? Do we give up on an intimate marriage? Do we withdraw uh, to an enclave of singleness? Do we abandon our unbelieving spouse? The answer is not abstinence for all. And it's not repudiation of being sexual beings. God has made us to be this. And we honor God with our sexuality when we use it according to his design. To the married, honor the Lord with gracious and generous intimacy to your spouse. If you're single, honor the Lord with your purity and your devotion. If you're married to an unbeliever, be faithful and pray. You're a missionary at home. Amen? Let's go to the Lord. Father, you are good. You give good gifts to your people. Forgive us when we misuse them. Forgive us when we overreact at the misuse of others. May we honor you, Lord, in the station of life in which we are. May we honor you with the good gifts you have given. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.